Fire. Hi, everybody. This is Shabir Shabiri back with you at the Shabir Show. I'm excited to have our next guest, who is an entrepreneur, an investor, real estate tycoon, and an author, Aaron McDaniel. Aaron, thanks for being on the Shabir Show. Thanks for having me, Shabir. So, who is Aaron McDaniel? Jeez. <laughs> that sounds like a simple question, but that, that's pretty deep. Uh, you could tell me the deep one, or you could tell me a surprise one. No. <laughs> I guess if, if if I had to say like who am I, I think the thing that I identify with most now is a, a teacher, both formally because I I teach, but also just that's kind of how I look at things. Like I'm I'm always looking for opportunities not only to learn myself but to teach and help others. It's awesome. And where are you uh, from? Like where you where did you grow up? Where are you? You know, I didn't think this was much of a big deal, but as I've networked in Silicon Valley, people sometimes are surprised that I'm actually from Silicon Valley. So I'm from Foster City, which is in in the shadow of the Oracle headquarters in Redwood Shores, sort of the the old top of the Silicon Valley. And so Mm -hmm. I, you know, I kind of grew up with uh, Silicon Valley around me, I guess. So, you know, my mom has been a travel agent for years and had uh, done some corporate accounts for some some companies from the even before 1.0 like you know companies in the 80s and 90s and then um, my dad was actually a, an executive chauffeur and his clientele was the celebrities but a lot of the people he drove around that he liked to drive around in particular were like Silicon Valley business people it's awesome yeah I, I actually it's great to have somebody who's from the bay area I'm from San Francisco and grew up in the peninsula as well so it's uh, always refreshing to see as much as you much because this is such a transient place with everybody coming here from like tech. And uh, where did you, you know, go to high school? Where did you go to college? What did you study? Yeah, I went to Aragon High School in San Mateo. <laughs> there was no high school in Foster City. Uh, still is no high school. And then I went to UC Berkeley. And I just did undergrad. Didn't end up doing any grad school in, in part because I was able to accelerate my career pretty fast on a corporate track. And I kind of looked at it and if I would have gone back and like got an MBA, I would have come back making less money at a lower position with quarter million dollars out of my pocket. So it didn't really make sense at the time. I was thinking about that too. I look back, I was studying for the GMAT uh, with a friend of mine. We were both pursuing, I was like, okay, it'd be kind of cool if I want to go towards like a, a venture capital role. And then I got the startup itch when the mobile advertising, mobile gaming, just the whole mobile app ecosystem launched. And so it was kind of at that point where like, do I continue with this? Maybe go to the East Coast, go to ideally like an Ivy League or some sort of school away from the Bay Area for a little bit, then come back. Or do I go this route? And I think you have to kind of know, you know, if you're more of an entrepreneur or an investor, what you're more passionate about. So when was, like you mentioned like at Berkeley and after Berkeley, you didn't, you know, you didn't go back for an MBA school. Were you like early on an entrepreneur or you found out a little bit later? Because I remember... You mentioned you said you worked for tech companies. Which tech companies did you get out of college with? Was it? Um, I started out of college with AT and T. And yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So how was that experience? Was it in the Bay Area or was that in the East Coast? So let me see if I can unpack a few of the things you talked about. So for me, entrepreneurship. I know a lot of entrepreneurs. They often have these stories about like you know selling cookies or these little businesses or whatever it might be or like a lemonade stand and. The funny story I had is is my mother really encouraged me to be an entrepreneur from early on. And there was this book called The Lemonade Stand. 
And for years, she would harp on me to read this book, even when I was like a little kid. And it was like one of these like super thick books with a lot of words in it. And like, I just always kind of avoided it. And I think I lost it at one point and I found it years later. And it was actually a book that parents are supposed to read to then teach their kids how to be entrepreneurs. And she, I don't know, misunderstood it or something and wanted me, the kid, to read it. Oh my gosh. Um, but I remember in college, I... I took an entrepreneurship class and, and was talking to the professor after you know being in class for a few months and, and was explaining some of the recruiting I was doing for a corporate job. And he was like baffled. He's like, you know, from what I can tell, you are an entrepreneur. Like, why are you going to, to go to that track? You know, part of the reason why I chose that track was because um, I, I think I wanted, well, a lot of people, maybe not the entrepreneur track, but they think of like, I want to go into a career where I have a lot of passion. And the way I thought about it was more about transferable skills. And so one of the transferable skills that you can have is management, right? No matter what industry, yeah. company, job function, management is useful. And I had this opportunity at AT&T basically to go into manage like 20 people right out of undergrad. And I was put at the same level as MBA grads and, you know, at a Fortune 10 company. So it was a pretty cool experience. But I basically, because I knew in my heart I was an entrepreneur, the entire like almost decade I was at AT&T. I was doing side businesses mm. um, of a like very eclectic variety of side businesses. You know, I started with uh, custom wedding invitations and that was a total flop for a number of reasons. One of which was it was around the time when we were actually having them made in China and shipped to the U.S. and just sort of masking the international shipping rate. And that's when there was a big oil price crisis where oil tripled. And so that like killed our margin. And then all the local vendors wanted to charge us like more than we were charging retail just to do the assembly of these different invitations. So that wow. kind of failed. Then, you know, natural progression. The next business was uh, portable beer pong tables, which is pretty fun. You know, so I was like, I remember they had this like world series of beer pong like type event in, at the Flamingo Hotel. Winner got like $50,000. And it was a business where there was like no barriers to entry. So we actually, had, we built a pretty good like distribution networks, like hundreds of sites reselling our tables, but there was always like some, you know, I'll, I'll stereotype and say like some frat guys who were like, man, these tables are so expensive. Let's create our own company. And then they would like put these low price ones out there. And then a mm -hmm. few months later, they would go out of business because they didn't understand that you have to make money to have <laughs> a business to profit. So anyway, yeah. we ended up actually selling that company right at the right time before the whole fad kind of died. So. Was able wow. to exit at the perfect time there, and then you talked about mobile apps and whatnot. And so I teamed up with a coworker who used to run a limo service, and we were like, "Man, people have these Blackberries in their pockets. Shouldn't it be cool to be able to call, you know, to get a cab to pick you up through an app?" And so we made a BlackBerry version and an iPhone version. <laughs> you know, this was like basically it was like '09, like right around the time you know Uber was starting out. And then that ended up being all year. What's that? It was called Flag Down Taxi. We, I mean, it, it's interesting looking back on a number of my experiences because yeah, there's tons of lessons to learn. And this was before I really understood the whole lean methodology of things. And also stupidly, like I think we decided to launch in five markets at once, which was just Whoa. absolutely ridiculous. So yeah, uh, lots of lessons from that. And then um, the beer pong one is interesting. I know it's like uh, if you look at the, the guys who created cornhole became like multimillionaires. 
Mm-hmm. It's expanded that thing. Now there's like a well, we, we were selling thousands of tables. Wow. And this is all during your time at AT&T? Yeah, and yeah. Have- and so while this was happening at AT&T, I was doing pretty well. I was going up in the organization. I was uh, I got this one thing called Diamond Club, top 1% of like sales leaders worldwide. I was managing a team of salespeople, B2B salespeople. And, and then I was one of the youngest to serve as regional vice president, like running a whole region while I was doing all of these other businesses. I, I almost, in, in a way, I almost looked at AT&T as like my venture capitalist. Like, you know, when you think about it, when you go to a VC for money, they give you money, you give them equity in your business. So with AT&T, I was giving them some of my time and they were giving me money that then allowed me not only to live, but to fund my businesses. And so that doesn't work if you're like in investment banking or something where you're working 100 hours a week. But if you have a job where you're working 40 to 50 hours a week, then, and you know, you don't have a a significant other or family or otherwise, then uh, you have time to do all these other businesses. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And so was, that was the, the company called Pong360. Is that correct? Yeah, that was, um, that was Pong360. And then, and then came the flag down, flag down taxi app. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. And then when did you get into, what's it called? investment side you know, access invest is that or oh, yeah yeah so, then, so yeah so then what, what happened after that around that time also i wrote a couple books what books did you actually start because i know you have a book right now we can go into that uh, in a bit what's the books you started back then yeah so basically i found what anyone who went to college found is that there's no real there's no course that tells you how to be successful in a corporate environment or work environment professional environment so mm-hmm. I, I wrote a book on essentially how to build the foundation for a successful career, like the skill set to build and the right mindset to have. And then also because of my experience leading large teams very early in my career, where I was managing people, not only my same age, but like twice my age, I wrote a book on how to be an effective young manager. So the first one, Young Professional's Guide to the Working World. The second one was Young Professional's Guide to Managing. And so I did that, and then I started speaking to companies in particular about how to engage their young employees and successfully you know, navigate a multi-generational workforce. So, so I did that, and then toward the latter part of when I was at AT&T, I started a early real estate crowdfunding platform called Tycoon Real Estate, you know, typical crowdfunding type thing. And then, Wait, and can then, you explain Tycoon Real Estate and like uh, as far as crowdfunding for those who don't know, crowdfunding basically. It's basically a collective way on a platform to promote an idea that you have. It's either like a company, startup, could be a product you want to sell all at once and then basically like promote it to the masses. And it can even be for something for a good cause, someone who's injured, who just needs some money. So what was this crowdfunding for this real estate side? Yeah, so it was equity crowdfunding. There were debt offerings as well, but basically it was... It was piggybacking off of this law that came out, the the Jobs Act, Jumpstart Our Business Startups, 2012. And basically, it changed or proposed to change some of the regulations to allow for not just accredited investors, but even the everyday person, non-accredited investors, to be able to invest in private securities, like things, you know, not public stocks. And so uh, there was a lot of potential, and it created this wave of a bunch of these companies coming out. And so, you know, I, I was one of the ones who started a company early and it ended up actually that a lot of the hype ended up really not working out because of how the law was implemented. Like they said, these non-accredited investors could invest, but they made the compliance so onerous and the limitations so low that basically you could raise up to a million dollars, but you had to create like essentially a prospectus 
and go through and spend probably $150,000, maybe more on compliance. So like 15 plus percent of the money you're raising, you have to go just to compliance. And so it kind of killed the opportunity. I started this in 2013, 2014. And, and so the early days of uh, the movement happening in that time frame, I believe, well, the time Facebook probably went public. And before Facebook going public, uh, there was a, probably one of the first companies that had a lot of like secondhand shares bought. Right. And that was yeah, kind of around that time that like those secondary markets were popping up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I know you can imagine like, Oh, you want to be an investor in tech. You got to be accredited. You need, you got know, you to same people usually in it. Okay. And then, so you did this real estate tycoon. Is this like a platform you kept going and doing, or did you kind of go and do other kind of real estate ideas? Yeah. What, what ended up happening there was I had, um, I pulled in some partners and they just, they didn't really understand early stage companies and, what ended up happening. So at the time, the other platforms that were out there were all like flipping houses. So I was like, why don't we get better assets? So, you know, instead of like flipping that hundred thousand dollar house, let's get, you know, something bigger. And so I plugged in with these commercial class A developers in New York. So like the Mm. first deal we were going to have was a, um, it's like a, uh, Ritz Carlton hotel in Westchester County. And, and then all of a sudden they, they couldn't make that work. And then it became, they had owned like a shopping center and then that didn't work. And then it became like a, a Trump building, like a Trump branded building. And anyway, it ended up, they didn't really deliver on what they were going to in terms of sure. deal flow. But I remember this probably was like one idea, but like you did ask me to come one time. I checked out and you were working on kind of uh, a very interesting model where taking like Silicon Valley business of the Google like office space and how they really changed the way people worked in an open environment, almost like a college campus. And you, you wanted to do that for like, you know, housing development for oh, say, uh, multi-units in up and coming parts markets in the U.S. like Minnesota or uh, yeah. Tennessee and so forth. So I never, I never really invested, but I know you've kind of dabbled in multi-investments in the real estate side. Yeah. So my real estate career, I invested in the worst time in history. So I invested in... 2006, I bought a house in the far east bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, like Pittsburgh, Antioch, kind of like the like the end of the Bart Line, way over there. Really I bought this house. Yeah, I bought this house for five hundred thousand dollars, and then first six months it went up to like five fifty, and I was like, man, this real estate thing is easy. This is great. <laughs> and then the market crashed, and it was worth one hundred and seventy thousand dollars. Wow. You know everything that they talked about in the Big Short, the movie. Yeah. It was, it was like it was. What happened with me? Like, uh, I had one of those negative amortization loans. I wasn't really, dis- it wasn't disclosed to me how it was going to balloon out. I found out later that the agent committed fraud to like get, get a friendly appraisal to get the deal done and all this mm. other stuff. And, and then the very first tenant I had had in there when I started renting it out paid for a few months and then just stopped. And I had to go through the whole process of like getting them kicked out. And I remember once the sheriff finally got them out, I went in and, they stole my washer and dryer, like to add insult to injury. And uh, um, back then, anyway, it was all that. Uh, I mean, that was like the first, uh, that was real big real estate. I mean, we'll see if this is going to happen soon. There's a lot of, it's already happening in most parts of America with the real estate dip. And it's a little different from, I think, 2008. But I remember back then, I was in college, around, you were mentioning 2006, I was like 2005, I graduated. But even around that time frame, People, I remember a friend of mine was like, oh, I have a friend, you should join, leave college and, you know, do loans, do, uh, do yeah, people were making a lot of money because 
people who don't have any credit, I'm like, oh, this is just like a completely flop. It, it's inevitable. It has to. And it did. So I'm very grateful I, I stuck to college and that, that uh, <laughs> as, a, as a vertical. Yeah. And then, okay, so basically you've been doing the real estate side. You've been, And that was, it's not like I failed a bunch since then. That was like the one big failure. I'm a very optimistic person. So I, I remember sure. thinking at the time, like better with thousands now than millions later. And yeah, so actually when it came to the downturn that's happening now, I was expecting it to come for the last few years. So I wasn't like drinking the Kool-Aid, like this is the coolest thing. It was like, I'm buying assets that can weather this storm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a discussion in the last ten years that oh, te- when is tech gonna kind of eventually fix itself and uh, in the market and you can see is slowly kind of fixing itself. Although there is some arguments that market dynamics are a lot more faster now. That's mm-hmm. why in twenty twenty it had a crazy dip and increase, and again we have another dip. You know, will it last long as long as it did in two thousand one through two thousand six, and then have another dip like it did then, or can it actually fix itself in the next eighteen months or twenty four months? We'll see. I think it just has to, the overall markets and inflation and real estate and interest rates, this all matters. I mean, I think it's something that it's not because you're just in technology and you need to, get to actually think, keep things cheaper. I remember you mentioned just before uh, we started the podcast about Shark Tank and real estate. When, when did you get on Shark Tank? So, so that company, Tycoon, yeah. I, I got on Shark Tank to pitch the business. And um, it was a, an interesting experience. I, I was a bit naive because I thought that it was going to be a entrepreneur talking to investors, but it was really an entrepreneur talking to actors. Like I remember they, they were saying things just for good television. Right. And uh, I was taking it more like a serious pitch, but mm-hmm. it ended up that, I mean, they edit things different ways, right? Like you, they, we recorded for like an hour or something. They cut it down to seven or eight minutes, but I got an offer from Kevin O'Leary and he wanted one twenty fifth of the valuation that I had just actually, I got money in the bank that week from investors for like a seed round. And he wanted one twenty fifth of that valuation, and I was like, I can't do that. I can give you maybe a little bit of a better deal, but I can't give you twenty five x better deal. Yeah. And so I, I turned it down, and you know, they for entertainment purposes were like, oh, you want to steal grandma's social security check, and and you know, you're a snake oil salesman, you know. <laughs> but the funny thing was, usually, if if for those who watch the show, sure. whenever they have someone that doesn't get a deal, they like usually flash to the sharks who are like. Who are like, man, that guy or girl like sucked. And then the entrepreneur is like, I still believe in my business and I'm going to take it to the top. And in the recording, the producer's like egging you on. Like, aren't you upset? They said this and this and this. And I was like, no, they just didn't understand my idea. Like I not, you know, whatever, <laughs> like I'm not desperate here. Yeah. So um, anyway, it was. Um, and then when the show came on, I mean, we had like this huge like spike of traffic and the site crashed and. Oh, oh, this crazy! Like it, it caught me at a wrong time because we were actually transitioning between like the portal I had before and, and shifting to a new one, and they only give you like a week or two heads up that the show's going to be on. And so mm-hmm. I was like in the middle of it, like, and I was just like, "Oh no!" Like, and I, I attempted <laughs> to the migration over to the new site, and then it ended up. Uh, so what happened is is Tycoon still thinking? Uh, no, what ended up happening was the this consortium of other crowdfunding companies bought bought Tycoon. Cool. And I, I was fine with that in part because of some of the co-funder dynamics that I was talking a little bit about. So I, I was ready to leave. Plus, I, I kind of saw an opportunity for another business just with some of the problems that existed. So that led to my next business, which was Access Invest. Can you explain to everybody what Access Invest was? Yeah, yeah. it was a mobile aggregator of all of these alternative investments, crowdfunding, you know, real estate, 
companies, oil futures, like all this stuff. And we jokingly referred to it as Tinder for investing because the mobile app had like a Tinder swipe interface. Like I like this deal. I don't like this deal. And, and then each deal had a bunch of structured data, like how much money was being raised, return profile, time horizon, all these things. And so as an investor user, you know, would swipe through, we would get a bunch of data around what their investment preference. Gotcha. Is that product still around? Like, uh, is there any kind of cool success stories as far as like investment? Yes, so that, that ended up actually. Yeah, I didn't go IPO, but that got acquired by a company called uh, North Capital. It's sort of a, a back end to a lot of the crowdfunding platforms, the the circle ups, fundraises, like all of those. Like they sort of do the the back end compliance and other functionality, and they saw opportunity to shift it into a uh, consumer facing like re- retail type app for public securities. And then actually, oh, all, these, all these companies you've had, and sorry to interrupt, but like you're talking like Pong360, Tycoon, sorry, Access Invest, these all basically were side hustle companies that you've sold. The true side hustle was the, the Pong360. I, okay. I had left AT&T when Tycoon really started to go and then got it, got it. Um, okay. And then was doing Access Invest full time. And then, yeah, exited Access Invest. And then let me ask you this. So you've had three companies you sold. There, that's one of the one of the craziest decisions and timeframes to really consider as an entrepreneur, right? A lot of entrepreneurs, maybe because we're in Silicon Valley, a lot of the business models here are raise capital. I call it VCs like a you know like you're getting steroids onto the, the company, you accelerate it. You have to accelerate it ten to a hundred times faster to bring the return on investments to investors, to the employees who are taking equity, maybe less of a salary base, and then the upside is in the equity for the long term. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, but like, as far as selling, a lot of times that's one of the hardest decisions. Like, do I sell it? Do I feel like this could do better on its own long term? And you've, you've sold three companies. Uh, with these kind of organically happen. And it seems like they were actually pretty good transitions into becoming like platform, backend solutions, things that these companies really needed. Can you explain like some of these scenarios and when is like a good time to you know, really believe in like selling and the market dynamics around that? Yes, that's um, always interesting, right? It's tough because it's kind of your baby that you created. Yeah. So you have to know the right time and not get too greedy, kind of, but you know, also take advantage of what's there. And so, in the case of Punk Three Hundred and Sixty, obviously, you know, e-commerce, but you know, a smaller niche. We just saw that because there were no barriers to entry, like literally, there were two factories in China that made all of these tables. You could look at any of the tables being sold, and in five seconds, you'd be like, okay, it came from that factory versus you know the other one. And so because there were no barriers, like these companies, as I was talking about before, just kind of kept coming in, lowering the price, getting knocked out. And so Interesting, we yeah. just kind of saw, okay, like, you know, we don't want to keep dealing with that. We built something of value, which is this reseller network of all, of, you know, these online stores and, and retail and otherwise selling this. And so somebody came along showing interest and we said, okay, let's, let's take it. And the timing was great because it... I don't think I I have this screenshot in somewhere where I can find it easily, but I remember we took this screenshot of Google search data for um for beer pong tables and it like dropped off a cliff like right around the time we sold. Like it was just like it just it was a fad that just totally stopped. And wow, then that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Again, the timing was great. Yeah. And you, you yeah. saw like the market dynamics shifting. And how about the other two companies? Yeah, so then with Tycoon you know, some of it was the whole purpose that I had when I started was I wanted to open this up to everybody. And it's just the way that the delay, first of all, and then just the way the law was being implemented, the Jobs Act, 
it wasn't allowing it to work for everybody. And then really what a lot of it was, was this, I, I brought on these co-founders who they were going to bring the deal flow and, you know, some of the legal expertise. And it just, it wasn't a good fit. They weren't really startup people. They were more like traditional finance type people, traditional real estate people that just didn't get it. Yeah. And so um, they just didn't understand some of the ups and downs of a startup. And when the opportunity came up, this sort of consortium of other um, crowdfunding platforms in based in Chicago wanted to buy it. I was like, yeah, okay, cool. This this will help sort of get out of this bad situation. And and then with with Access Invest, it was, um, yeah, I guess with Access Invest, I probably could have kept going for longer. I didn't work on that, I think, for more than like 18 months or something like that. And then and then just the opportunity came up to sell. So, yeah. I mean, that's great. I, you know, 18 months, a company you can sell in that time frame. It's pretty good because a lot of times they say like, like you were talking about the lean startup idea, you know, test and fail quickly. But hey, if it tests and actually, you know, succeeds and you, you have an inclination that, oh, you could try to be standalone, you could, could try to get this capital or sell, you sold. So it sounds pretty good. Let's talk about your investment size as well. Sorry about the earlier confusion, but like um, you've uh, investment slash startups and just kind of going to the teacher kind of concept you brought up earlier. You've been part of Growth Scale and 10X Innovation Labs. Can you explain to everybody what they do and what you're doing on each one? Yeah. So with real estate, I told you my sob story of, of the first deal I invested in that, that house. I yeah. did a little bit more residential investing. And then a few years after that, started getting into multifamily. And so um, we call what we do sub-institutional multifamily. So not the little like quadplexes, eightplexes that a lot of people compete for and not the like huge 500 unit complexes, but this sort of middle ground of like, depending on the market, 20 to 100 or 200 units where it's too small for big institutional investors because the amount of work they would need to put in with diligence and otherwise would be the same for them to do a bigger deal that they could deploy more capital with. And it was too big for the local people. And so it was just this nice little niche. And often it was uh, mom and pop type owners that have worked their way up to bigger complexes over time and were prioritizing cash flow instead of keeping up with market rents. And so there was just typically meat on the bone to hmm. be able to add value. So yeah. my business partner and I, he, and he and I had worked on other businesses like Pong 360 together. Yeah. Um, we started investing our own money in this and sort of proved it out. And then over time, hmm. have syndicated some deals in the, the multifamily space. And we typically intentionally go outside of California just because, uh, you know, one, you can get a little more bang for your buck in terms of number of units, but also regulation is, you know, sometimes a little more landlord friendly. But then part of what we do to the point of, of being a teacher, we offer like a mastermind group and education to our investors. So the same type of thing you'd pay thousands of dollars for like weekend seminars for, we teach to our LPs and then when they have deals or they have situations, like we help them. So like one of my LPs, she had bought a, a multi-unit in, in Central Valley and had a situation where there was like a, a big leak and something flooded. And it really, you know, could rationale could be that the seller should have known about this and whatnot. So I helped her figure out, well, how do we get the seller hmm. from to pay for it, which we did. And, and situations like that, or, hey, I have this deal. Can you analyze it for me? So yeah, we offer that to our, our limited partner investors because you know we know that they often have aspirations to do other real estate themselves. And that's kind of how we started as LPs to other GPs and mentors. And so uh, we kind of want to pay it forward. That's awesome. 
I like the approach, right? Like bring kind of, uh, you're taking something that's not there, but something successful like the masterclass concept and using your basic skill set to teach individuals, high net worth individuals, some uh, best practices and hopefully you'd be part of their success story if they're, you know, real estate. Yeah. And I'll just say for listeners, like I've heard many people talk about, about this. I, I have a, a friend of mine's uncle who's, who's very wealthy. He's, he told me, he's like, I've done businesses of all kinds, Aaron, but I've always made more money off of real estate. And so when you look at like over civilizations and geographies and eras, like the best way to make and you know build wealth is through real estate. So I understand there's flashy returns out of angel investing and other things, but yeah, it's a little bit more, uh, it's, you know, traditional cash flow business, right? Along with obviously some market dynamics. I guess before we go into 10x innovation, let's talk about this specific on the real estate side. I want to pick your brain. Um, so in, in the United States, supposedly we have capped the amount of supply versus the demand. So the demand is like we have a, a younger and younger generation. They have a decent amount of capital, not a lot to, you know, buy this real estate. There is, so much, I think I forgot the number, something about several million houses in the market, maybe 30 million, or maybe I'm, I'm wrong here. And that's it. Like in, in the last uh, decade, they have not built much homes at all. There's only certain states that has built out more just because there's more land. It's real estate friendly. And then, um, you know, cost of living. So the one, that's why real estate costs of its one really high Two. People have been holding on to their, like the, the older generations, uh, have held on to this capital, you know. So these are a few things. I'm like, well, why don't they build more? Like, it's just like, why don't they allow to build more supply that's out there? And then, oh, lastly, this is what I was going to bring up is I saw the statistic, and I don't know if this is actual fact or not, 15% of all residential real estate is being owned by private equity. And it's, exp- yep. it's yeah. increasing more and more in the US, which that doesn't help. I mean, so like, is it really worth to buy a house or is it short term to buy a house to sell the private equity? Because I think things are changing. Are you, now are you one. talking about to buy a house to live in or for investment? For investment purposes, primarily. Okay. Um, so, so here's what I would say. Like, I think, yes, real estate can be intimidating. So I, I get that. But let's say you're an entrepreneur. By the way, and even I think even buying, because I think a lot of younger generation have not bought. They're still renting out. Because of the intimidation, because of the fact that like, why would I put my entire livelihood on this bank loan? So yeah. maybe both of those arguments. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, like, you don't really understand this when you're like fresh out of college, when you're younger, but, but being able to cap your living expenses or like the most significant part of your living expenses is, is an important thing. And to your point of people sticking around longer that has enabled people to like live in expensive areas that they couldn't otherwise afford. Like my, my parents really couldn't afford to be in the Bay area if they didn't own their house and hadn't owned it since the eighties. Correct. And so the other thing I look back at my experience, me buying real estate that I lived in early on, I looked at it as future down payment money for subsequent houses. So (laughs) it allowed me to not have to save up. I didn't have to like save to have a down payment for a house when I wanted to buy because I was getting it through the equity being built in the first place I bought. And mm. then when it came to buying another house, it was like, cool, I sold that. I have all the capital. Let me just roll it over into the down payment of the new one. So one, that's the way I look at it. I think it makes sense to do that, especially if at some point in your life, you would like to you know, not have to work, right? Like, because you don't have to because your expenses are fairly fixed. But then on the other side, I think when it comes to investing in real estate, 
for investment purposes, a lot of um, a lot of entrepreneurs like forget some of the general business dynamics, and then they go and buy houses. And what I mean by that is this: if you have a business, it's not a good business if you only have one customer, right? There's just a lot of risk because if that customer goes away, you have zero revenue. Well, that's what happens when you buy a house, right? You like all of that, you know, if, you're, if your tenant leaves, it's an empty house, you have no revenue. Plus what I found is when I bought single family homes, like one capital expenditure could just knock out a ton of cash flow. Like I had this one house in that Pittsburgh Antioch area that I bought after the market fell out and it was making like $500 a month positive cash flow on a few thousand dollar investment. It's pretty good. And then the air conditioner broke and it was $6,000 and like a whole year of cash flow just went out the window. But then there's a flip side. There are some flip sides. For example, I mean, this is years ago. A friend of mine, I think it was something between 10 to 12 years when I went to South by Southwest in Austin. He's like, buy, buy here in Austin. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm not talking about 2022. I'm talking about 2010, 2012. And he said, I'm paying off my basically my entire house mortgage just by renting it out in South by and a few of the events around here that yes. year. Right. And I think people are doing that as a model with Airbnb and others. Again, it's very high risk. Like I read an article about some people are making 250K on their homes in Arizona for the Super Bowl coming up. Yeah. Right? You know the best time to invest in real estate, right? No. 20 years ago. <laughs> I, I heard that somewhere. I think it's true. Yeah. That's why I encourage everyone to invest as, as soon as possible because it builds, you know, and, and, and it's an asset class that has always gone up in value over time. Like, a lot of people are freaking out about inflation right now. Yeah. I have, you know, what happens in these inflationary times as the wages go up, rent goes up and other things like that, which just makes the property that I own more valuable. Hmm. That's a great perspective. To finish the thought I was, I was saying yeah, about my yeah, houses, when you buy multi-unit, it's like having a business with multiple customers. Like let's say you have a 20-unit complex and three of the tenants move out. Well, you still have 17 other tenants paying. Yes. Plus, when you get into that multifamily, like when you get out of the duplex, quadplex, whatever, the pricing is based on the the um, revenue that that or the profit that that building presents. And so things like maintenance and all of these costs are built in. When you're buying single family homes, you're competing against people who would live there as well. So yeah. it doesn't account for things like property management fees and otherwise. And so, yeah, when I was at plug and play, my you know, first place I was working at and in the early days, I think now it's their business models completely changed because they most of the revenue comes from corporate partnerships, sponsorships, as well as uh, the outside yep. they get into equity in the companies. But early days, we would need to make everything cash flow positive with real estate. Mm-hmm. So kind of similar to the multi-unit model, we wanted to get as many tech companies and startups moving in so we could basically maximize revenue as well as hedge the situation that like, oh, should we just rent this entire place to one company? You know, and if they leave, that's a huge, huge loss. So I'm very familiar with that kind of business model. And then with the time that we have remaining, I would love to hear about like 10X Innovation Lab and, um, you know, in your book. So in your current book. So like, uh, you want to explain a little bit about 10X Innovation Lab? Yeah. So basically, um, after I exited my last company, I kind of unexpectedly you know, I, I was hoping to maybe teach in like 30 years, but I got asked to teach entrepreneurship at Haas School of Business. And so I've been teaching there for the last six years or so and uh, teaching entrepreneurship. And it was around the time when my first, my first kid was born. And so it was like a good time to kind of relax and take back a little bit. And, and basically my mother-in-law, her best friend, her son-in-law, like basically our mother-in-laws are best friends. 
uh, he was he was starting this consulting firm that uh, was a, really about helping companies connect into Silicon Valley from outside the U.S. And so that's 10x Innovation Lab. So with, with what we do, it's like a it's like a, an accelerator, but it's not a traditional like take applications in batches. Our clients are government agencies, like a Ministry of Science and Technology, Ministry of Small Business, Ministry Trade and Commerce, and so they have sets of companies that they bring in. And then we help connect them into Silicon Valley. Well, what ended up happening was we found out there were just a lot of mistakes that these companies were making. Like I, one thing I jokingly would like to say is like, like, you know, these entrepreneurs would come into Silicon Valley and they'd expect to get into SFO, go to the baggage claim and see a venture capitalist there with a million dollar check for them. It was just like, that's, that's, that's the, the dream, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's not how it works. So they think, okay, let me get Silicon Valley money and then I'll go get U.S. customers when really it's the other way around. And so... Yeah. When the pandemic hit, my uh, co-founder in that business, Klaus, he and I were just talking and we realized all these mistakes they were making. And so we, we kind of went on our own journey to see like what the world's most successful companies did to expand global. We interviewed over 400 executives from almost 60 countries and like every tech brand you can imagine from like Airbnb and Zoom and Slack and Canva and like all of these companies, Square, all these other we interviewed them and basically synthesized this playbook for how to build a global business. And and even though some of these companies are huge now, we often were talking to the people who were there very early on in their expansion journeys. And they just kept telling us like, hey, we like reinvented the wheel. Like even those who worked at like McKinsey and Bain and BCG, they went into these operational executive roles and they were like, I didn't have any framework to know what to do. We just kind of figured it out and wasted a lot of time and money in the process. And and one of the things we found was that the lean methodology doesn't really work in a global context. And what I mean by that is like, you know, the whole purpose is to iterate and change and pivot till you find your right model. That's sure. great in one market. But if you do that in 10 markets, now you have 10 different models. And so the complexity that comes along with that really stalls growth. And we found most companies, that's an afterthought. So they hit, you know, country number three, four, five, they hit a wall and have to stop and basically rebuild a foundation for their global growth you know, in order to scale. And so anyway, so we created that book. It, it actually just came out about a month ago and we've been blown away. Like it was, it was on the wall street journal bestseller list. Like the uh, first couple of weeks it was out, like we we're number two on the, the business bestseller list. And, um, you know, uh, we're starting to work with companies to help them. You know, I, I mean, this is kind of a side note. Uh, I noticed like with companies that are abroad a lot of times, especially tech companies to a certain extent, uh, it's kind of survival of the fittest versus like in, in Silicon Valley, a lot of people are willing to take upfront risk. Maybe they're out of college, you know, maybe they raise capital. So it's almost like a, a lab, you know, like college lab, you could test things out and fail versus abroad. You're like, I got to make a living. <laughs> so let me start selling stuff from the get go so I can have some cash flow. So there's an, an interesting dynamic. Obviously, the, the type of vertical business and industry is all different. But I have noticed something like that is a little different than, say, Silicon Yeah, well, and to that point, another big difference we saw is just the view on global. So we also, in our book, we don't use the word home market. We use the word initial market because sometimes, right. you know, where you're from, you think of global very differently. Like most U.S. entrepreneurs, U.S. companies, they think about global like after they raise their Series B or Series C funding. Whereas if you're from Israel, you're thinking about global day one because your market at home is not big enough. And so some of that mentality that these companies are often that came from smaller countries that they had, they built this flexibility so they weren't hard coded just for the U.S. market. So it was much easier for them to add country number three, four, five, ten 
20. And so in the book, the, the book's called Global Class. We talk about this global class company and this mindset they have that's different than the legacy mindset of, you know, we're going to do things the company way all across the world. I love the name of the book. Uh, and congrats on all the success it's had. You know, with the time we have remaining, I usually like to ask two quick things. One is, what's your thoughts on like the rest of, I guess this is a short amount of times in, in 2022 and 2023 in the future? Like, what are you optimistic about? What do you see kind of like the next big waves and things? You're very multifaceted. So I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. And it could be tech, it could be real estate, it could be anything. Yeah, geez, that's a that's an interesting question. I mean, there's obviously a lot of opportunity with Web three. I, I think mm-hmm. it's, there's going to be a lot of turbulence before you really figure out what like we we all, we all see what really comes to be. Like most of the companies in the space right now are going to fail. That's just kind of how it is. It was the same thing for Web one and two So I think there's a lot of potential just in that space. But I I, I am interested to see when. Um, when some of the more legacy industries like will will truly get disrupted because like real estate in a lot of ways has not been as disrupted, especially on the commercial side, as much as it could have. Uh, you know, I I just went through the the publishing process and and the the publishing industry is is uh, you know for, for books is, is pretty pretty old school in the way they think about things, and so um, there's just there's tons of of things. I I think over time I have seen there's more opportunity in unsexy businesses you know obviously the, the unsexy the businesses make a lot of money yeah 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 I, I think to the real estate point I, I think i saw a shirt somewhere or something that said uh ugly buildings make pretty profits or something like that so um yeah uh, it doesn't always have to be the flashiest thing yeah. yeah um and then do you have any kind of like uh i guess Aaron McDaniel, best practice kind of thing. Like if you're somebody like yourself, and I would say I'm kind of in that boat, right? Like I, I have my job, I like my day job, but I'm doing this podcast. It's something on the side I'm, you know, I'm doing, but like, well, you know, if people have kind of that, uh, itch or, uh, you know, want to do some stuff on the side, what would you kind of guide them as like one of the first few steps to do that step? Um, yeah. So I, I think I think there are two two pieces of advice. So one yeah, is um, and, and I think this is this happens in general, but in particular in, in Silicon Valley, the tech community is is you get this response of like I'm too busy, like like when someone reaches out to want to connect with you or otherwise, oh I'm just too busy, and like a couple of things. One like okay, get over yourself. Like what you're doing is not that important that you can't spend 15 minutes talking to somebody. And two more importantly, it's those type of things that lead to other opportunities. There are many times in my career where, because to the point of what we said, what I said at the beginning of the, the podcast, like helping people and being willing to teach people and things like being open to that has just given me tons of opportunities, including like teaching it at Haas. Um, so I would say that the, the other thing I would say is, uh, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll wrap this into a story. So, Perfect. After college, I, I, I graduated in like three and a half years and I, I had that job at, at AT&T or SBC at the time set for me. Um, so I had like seven, eight months to go travel where I didn't have to do anything, you know, no work. And so I went traveling all over the world. And, and in one of the trips, I, I took this tour in Tasmania. Wow. And it was me and like 20 couples in their 70s and 80s. <laughs> and I basically saw the proverbial American dream in action. So we'd get on the bus, we'd drive, you know, an hour to whatever place, we'd get out, 
uh, you know, most people would kind of go over to the bathroom, wouldn't go that far from the bus. I'd be off wondering, seeing all sorts of different things. Get back on the bus. We'd do it again two or three more times throughout the day. And then we'd pull into the next hotel at 530. Dinner would be at 630. Everyone would be literally lined up at six o'clock to eat. And then they'd be back in their room and go to bed at eight o'clock. And so that was like the American dream in action. And, and what I think that's a great, op- you know, it's, it's not about like, oh, I'm going to save off and not do things until I retire. So I think the, the lesson advice I have is do things out of order. So, right. you know, like I, I even look like in my, in my life, like I, I was dating someone at the time and she moved in and two or three weeks later, the owners of the place were like, yeah, we're going to sell. And so we talked about it and we decided to buy it together, even though we weren't engaged or anything. Wow. And now she's, you know, my wife and, you know, awesome. very first years. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I, like, I didn't expect to teach this early on. I was expecting to do it when I'm like 60 years old, sure. um, tons of business opportunities and things that I've, I have done, you know, I'm focused right now a lot on my family, even though this is kind of prime age of life to, to go build, you know, like a big tech company or something like that. But, uh, it's okay to do things out of order. You don't have to follow that script of exactly what, what, um, you know, the industry or the world or whoever tells you. On that note, thanks, Aaron. I love the the kind of the closure. Uh, it's great to hear your story and the very unique perspectives on how you've uh, created multi-businesses and different verticals as an entrepreneur. And now you're an investor, a teacher, an author. Uh, thanks so much for joining the Shaber Show. And um, you know, thank you, everybody, for listening in. Uh, thanks again, Aaron. Thanks, Shaber. <laughs>